Hello to the wonderful world of podcast listeners out there. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Miracle Soup. Today, I was honored with the opportunity to interview Stephen Gray. And Stephen Gray is the author of a book called Cannabis and Spirituality. Um, as I began sort of putting out the feelers and, and asking people if, if they were interviewing me, I, I really did not think for a second anyone was going to say yes. And Stephen Gray, within one day, said, sure, I'll, I'll interview you. And I told him this is my first interview and it's a very small podcast and it's just getting started. And he said, you know, as long as you think that this will gain uh, audience and this will you know, get some traction, um, and it's not just going to disappear out into cyberspace. I'll I'll give you some time and do the interview. And I was I was amazed. I mean, I was I was shocked, quite frankly, um, because Stephen's a real author. I mean, the dude's written books, and there's a they have forwards and recommendations, and it, it's actually published by a real publisher. And I was just amazed. Um, I heard about Stephen Gray. Somehow, sometime after I was reading um, the wonderful book by D. Dussault called Ganja Yoga, which was really the first book that sort of turned me on to starting to really become okay with smoking herb um, and really like shifting away from like having this trip in my head that it's like this bad druggy thing, even though I know it's brought so much benefit in my life. Um, D's book really helped me to like allow myself to engage in a yoga practice, do good things for myself, start to learn how to um, utilize cannabis in ways that really benefit me with like intention and um, and 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 good focus and and prayer really. So I reached out to D as well, and she she said, you know. If your podcast is around in a year, why don't you get back to me and I'll see I'll see about doing that. She's kind of, you know, a little fancy schmancy, little little more little famous, but um her book is awesome by the way. Ganja Yoga is a game changer for anyone who is into using cannabis as a tool of transformation in their yoga practice. But as I was kind of researching her online, I came upon a talk by Stephen Gray, some YouTube talk he was giving. And the way he spoke, he spoke so eloquently. And he reminded me of Terrence McKenna in that guys like this or women, um, they're able to bring an element of, of eloquence into the way that they talk about herb it's not just, oh, man, dude, I got so high. I was so baked. It was so rad, man. I was like, I could like, my third eye was like totally open. No, um, he, he spoke with such eloquence and um, obviously so much knowledge and courage that I was really, I was really amazed by, by the way that he was able to deliver this information. It really inspired me to smoke a joint. I mean, it really inspired me to um, look deeper into uh, his work. So I ordered Cannabis and Spirituality online. The book is called Cannabis and Spirituality, an Explorer's Guide to an Ancient Plant Spirit Ally.
You can totally get it on Amazon. He's also got a website called, and it's a www.cannabisandspirituality.com is his website. Um, so anyway, basically, let me just give Stephen a little introduction from the back of his book here. Stephen Gray is a teacher and writer on spiritual subjects and sacramental medicines. He has worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with entheogenic medicines. The author of Returning to, Sac- Sacred Wor- Returning to Sacred World, a Spiritual Toolkit for the Emerging Reality. He is also a conference and workshop organizer, leader and speaker, as well as a part-time photographer and music composer under the artist name Kiri. He lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. And yeah, I mean, guys, seriously, just a little preface. I was, I was so nervous. I don't even know why. Well, first of all, I'd had a lot of drama going around, you know, just, just in my life on the day of, of course, of course that's going to happen. All this drama happens the day of an interview when I was trying to keep cool and focused and shit hit the fan from every direction. But I made the interview actually from the back of my truck in a little spot on a North San Juan Ridge where I could actually get reception. So there was that. And then I was so nervous beforehand because I was just like waiting for the interview to start. I thought, oh, well, probably should take a little puff, you know, just to kind of calm my nerves. Didn't really calm my nerves. I think it sort of amplified my my nervousness a little bit. Not that that was bad. And you'll notice as the podcast, um, you know, as it goes into probably the first the 20 minutes or so, is like I, I kind of get it. I like I chill out. I stop interrupting him so much. Um, I just kind of let the interview take on a life of its own the way that it wants to. And we just, we just see where it goes. So yeah, there's a lot of great things in here, a lot of great information, especially for someone who, um, who likes to smoke herb and is, and you, and somebody who might have some kind of inclination, like, wow, there's really is a sacred element. Maybe you've been exposed to the, uh, the Rastafarians, the way that they use it and the Ital culture, or maybe you've been to India and you see how the sadhus use it. Um, for somebody who has an inkling that there, there is something more to cannabis than just getting high and like getting the munchies, you know, or like, or like numbing out your feelings when you're feeling uncomfortable for someone who, who has that like instinct that, wow, this, this plant is really profound and magical and transformative. And for someone who wants to learn more about that, this interview is great. Stephen Gray's work and his book is great. I could not put a thing down. It's, it's just such a fun read. So fun. So I recommend it to anybody. And without further ado, let us begin the first interview here on Miracle Soup with Stephen Gray. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope also this is the first of many more enlightening conversations to help spread consciousness with regard to sacramental plant medicines, as well as um, conscious evolution of the human race. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and I will uh, I will be at the other end of the of the interview with a few closing remarks. Aloha, Stephen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, doing. Yeah, no, no problem. 
Hey, um, I was wondering if we could just start with you. I, you know, I want to give a little bit of background to listeners regarding who you are, but um, more specifically, do you actually make your living from teaching about cannabis and talking about cannabis and writing about it and spirituality and that kind of thing? Uh, no. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not trying to make money from it. There are people who are, uh -huh. um, and I do make money when I do things. I just did a, uh, um, well, let's see, two and a half days and one evening um, cannabis um, journey to awakening, they called it, up at a place in Caslow, B.C., uh, called the Sentinel. Wonderful place, by the way, if anyone is ever interested in checking them out. It's called, uh, the, I believe the Earl is Sentinel, B, Sentinel BC, as in British Columbia, dot C-A. So S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L B-C dot C-A. And they have a lot of really interesting programs. And I just did one up there last weekend. Um, and uh, they paid me Oh, something like, this is Canadian money, $225 per person um, and, um, you know, travel expenses and nice. put me put me up and fed me and all that stuff. So, you know, that happens. But I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to, I'm not creating a, like a website to try to promote myself. I'm at a pro point in my life where I just kind of fall into things really, you know, more than anything. Yeah. Um, I call it following the golden thread, you know, and... Uh, it basically, it's like um, uh, paying attention to, you know, you make, you, okay, the simplest way to put it is you make your offering or your offer. In this case, it was the book, Cannabis and Spirituality. And, uh, you know, and then you participate in the, uh, in the, in the, you ride the golden thread, so to speak. But the golden thread part of it is like uh, just the naturally existing energies that develop over time, you know? Yeah. So pretty much everything I do. Uh, as far as these kinds of ceremonies is where people have found out about me. I, I generally say yes to interviews. So there are things on YouTube and so on. Yeah. And then, then they write me and they say, could you come to Edmonton, Alberta and do a, a weekend ceremony there? Sure. Let's talk about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, but you know, there are people, have you heard of Daniel McQueen? No. Where do you live by the way? Nevada city, California, Northern California. Oh, okay, yeah. Daniel's in Colorado, uh, Denver, perhaps. Um, and uh, he's been, uh, for over five years, he's been very active in uh, leading cannabis uh, ceremonies and doing therapy work with it, like individual counseling and set private sessions and a number of things. And I don't know for sure, but I suspect that's how he's making his money, actually. And I I know a couple of other people that are trying to pursue that avenue. As I say, I'm just kind of, you know, riding the golden thread. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe their golden thread took them to the universe supporting them doing that work. Yeah, very possibly. Yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking about that yesterday. I was thinking as I was reading your book and thinking about, you know, maybe reaching out to some of the contributors to your book. I was thinking, wow, it's just like following a thread. It's like, where is this? Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's kind of like that. You, huh. you act on intuition, you act on curiosity, you respond to energies coming your way and feel them as they come into your space and either uh, run with them if they feel right and don't if they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When was the first time you smoked weed? Or huh. uh, well, um, over 50 years ago, to be honest, I was a teenager, adolescent. 
Um, and even though I had no idea about it being any sort of a spiritual or sacramental medicine, um, when I look back on it, and I didn't also feel like it had, it was something that changed me much at the time. But when I look back on it, I would say it did because it showed me another kind of mind, you know, yeah. it showed me, it showed me there were alternate perceptions available. I hadn't tried any of the psychedelics at that time. Um, the, the only mind altering substance I'd worked with up to them then was alcohol, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, as a somewhat, uh, irresponsible uh, adolescent, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, you know, cannabis changed perception significantly. And I, I found that fascinating. And, and then, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I won't describe the very, very first experience, but, but over the next couple of years, again, still not uh, you know, thinking of it as a spiritual medicine, particularly, or anything like that. And then I did start, you know, trying LSD and a couple of other things that, you know, other psychedelics, but mostly LSD actually, but, um, or acid as we called it. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, well, it is, it's lysergic acid, lysergic acid or lysergic, whatever, yeah, 25, you know, LSD 25. Anyway, um, uh, I noticed certain things, um, in, you know, certain situations that just came up. I noticed, I mean, I've always loved music and I played music and I taught music and that sort of thing. And it, uh, cannabis really taught me how to listen to music or taught me depths of listening to music and appreciation levels of appreciation for music that I had not previously, uh, discovered, you know? So that was one thing. It also, I, I credited for uh, teaching me how to dance. Right. I came of I came of age at a time when um, free of dancing had become popular. Like up to that, previous generations always danced in couples, unless it was performance dance of some kind, you know, like ballet or modern dance or whatever, or show dance. But for dancing, like going to a dance club or whatever, you know, in previous generations previous to mine, people always danced in couples. You know, even if they weren't like touching, they were facing each yeah. other doing whatever it was, you know, um, but my generation went, well, wait a minute, you could just dance. You don't have to have a partner. Um, so I got really into that. And, but the first time that I discovered that I could do that was when I was at a small club that was playing Celtic music and I was with some friends and, and, you know, I wasn't particularly, I, I was kind of shy actually still when I was a teenager and somewhat physically reserved that way enthusiastic but somewhat shy or physically reserved and then we were at this club and there might have been a beer mixed in but there certainly wasn't much of that maybe a beer and then but we'd had a couple of puffs and um so they were playing this you know irish reel da 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 whatever you know? yeah and uh and i i felt like i wanted to get up and dance to it and i got up on the dance floor and i started just spontaneously doing uh, you know, kind of what would you call like it? Irish um, pseudo Irish step dancing, right? Like not real Irish step dancing, but my version of it. Yeah. And uh, and having a wonderful time and feeling really free. And I walked back over to the table and my three or four or five friends all sitting there with their jaws on the floor going, where the hell did that come from, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, it's like the le leprechaun spirit jumped into you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know, ever and then the whole you know next number of years, I went to lots of dances with the hippies, you know, and and uh, I would just get out on the dance floor and let it go, you know, and it was really 
you know, wonderful experience to do that. I still feel that way. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little long in the tooth now and I still, I'm pretty loose actually. And, uh, um, I, I, I don't go to clubs, but, uh, you know, sometimes I'll put on music at home or headphones or whatever, and I'll just get into it. And, uh, um, you know, my body's quite sort of loose like that. In fact, when I do these cannabis ceremonies, I really encourage people to uh, loosen up the body and get that kind of kundalini serpentine sexual kind of not directly sexual. You know, I'm not trying to you know create an orgy orgy or anything, but right. um, uh, you know, like I just notice that most of the people I work with in these ceremonies, um, they're you know, it's like. I guess the the grossest generalization is that white men can't dance. Right. You know. Yeah. So people people from our cultures, these sort of northern white kind of cultures, need to free up that uh, that uh, you know serpentine, whatever you know, sexual, sensual kind of free flowing. You know. Yeah. Um, you know the way a lot of black people. You know, don't mean to overgeneralize, but you know, black people have you know for the most part been freer and looser with all that. Um, and other some other cultures as well, uh, but uh, you know we could learn a few things by you know that way um, that are actually really valuable because it's connecting you into your body and helping move energy more. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's kind of a long answer to your question about you know how I kind of got started. And, um, it, it, I always thought of it as sort of like the little brother um, to you know the big psychedelics back in those days. Uh -huh. Um, uh, and it wasn't really until, I mean, I went through a period where I wasn't using anything like that much, um, because I was, in, I was a student of, uh, Tibetan Buddhism under the, uh, teacher Chugyam Trungpa. Oh, I went to Europa. Yeah. I know about him well. Yeah. Well, I was a student of his when he was still on the planet. Yeah. Um, he might still be, but, you know, yeah. technically speaking, he passed away over 30 years ago. Yeah. And so, uh, I was around him a bunch in that time. Um, in the early 80s, from 80 till 86 or 7 when he died. And uh, that nobody nobody in that community was doing psychedelics yeah. uh, or, or cannabis, except, you know, a little bit sly on the side kind of thing. Um, so I kind of left it behind. But then in the late 80s, uh, I, you know, there could be a long story about this, but the shortest version of it is that I encountered the work of Terence McKenna. And uh, that re-inspired me because I'd always been interested in the spiritual side of of, of life altogether, you know, meditation and things like that. Um, and I knew there was potential there with the psychedelics, but I didn't know anything about the traditions. I hadn't read that kind of material. I didn't, hadn't, didn't really understand, you know, the set and setting concept, particularly that's very important, you know, and, uh, but then Terrence put it together, put these sort of two apparently separate things together, you know, spiritual awakening practice, um, and um, psychedelic or sacramental medicines that way, which he pointed out had been used for awakening and healing purposes for thousands of years in traditional indigenous cultures. And so I was like, aha, okay. So that kind of led me on the path to today and eventually to the book and that sort of thing. Stephen, what would you tell somebody who is, who you know would benefit from cannabis when you know used in, in a good way and what would you tell them if they're so someone who's so entrenched in the reefer madness mentality and all the conditioning and they're just so closed off to the benefits of it like um do you just walk away from that or, or what what do you say to someone like that well you know one answer that comes up uh, uh on that one um is uh um yeah as you said that it reminded me of um 
uh, a teaching that the Buddha is uh, reported or reputed to have uh, shared with his uh, students or whatever, his monks and so on, which was, um, there are, you know, it's just a number, but it, you know, it's, it's kind of a marker point or whatever, you know, uh, 49 levels of aspiration, you know, so you could assume that, you know, number 49 or whatever side end of that scale is the top end would be the people that, that have some inkling that they really want to completely wake up to truly who they are. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, other people going down that scale would have less and less uh, sort of ambition or desire or passion for that sort of full awakening. And, but basically what he said is you, you teach to the level that you meet. You, you don't try to teach above that level in particular. Right. So, um, you know, if a person is not open to learning about this, I'm, I'm not going to communicate anything to them. You know, they have to be interested, you know, yeah. it's, that's how it works. Um, uh, the, I think more importantly, if I may say so, to the question you're asking, rather than the reefer madness people. Okay, so that's another issue. That's like you start showing people through a variety of ways, not directly, but through the culture, which is what's happening with cannabis now, yeah. that it is actually safe and it has these medicinal benefits and so on. But I'm not going to walk in and talk to somebody who's, you know, kind of uh, in the grip of, you know, what you call the reefer madness attitude that uh you know that cannabis can be a spiritual awakening substance they probably don't even know what spiritual awakening means in a real way um let alone that cannabis could be involved in it so we're not really talking to those people particularly yeah. other than uh trying to gain further legal recognition for the plant by making you know a proper case for it the people that are more likely to be uh influenced or where that's a possibility are people who already use cannabis but still don't have an inkling of its uh, of its spiritual power you know um, and that i encounter quite a bit um, and those people often are curious to find out more um, and some of them come to my ceremonies but they they really are they find themselves really surprised at how deep and how powerful this can go when you're really focusing in that way you know um, we often <clears throat> i like to do day-long ones um, you know, just an, you know, I'll, I'll do evening ceremonies as well. And then we're just smoking a little or using a vaporizer. Um, so it's just inhaled cannabis. Uh, but the day long ones I bring in an edible. And, uh, and in fact, um, I've started including a very, very small amount of psilocybin mushroom, nice. just as, just as an offering, they don't have to do it. Some don't, uh -huh. but, um, basically I have these little chocolate mushroom chocolates that are carefully measured out at one quarter of a dried gram. Um, uh, and that <laughs> is, that's just, in my understanding, that's just above, uh, technically speaking, that's just above microdose level. Okay. Uh, um, uh, I think standard microdose level is 0.1 to 0.2 in that range. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not much of, it's, you know, it's kind of in that category of microdose, but what it does is, uh, it um, it uh, intensifies things a bit, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it, it it acts as a supporting player, so it's really still a cannabis experience. So that, for example, the one we did on the weekend, we start in the morning, uh, around about ten ten thirty, and um, I have some again carefully uh, measured or you know, what they call titrated um, uh, ten milligram chocolates of cannabis um, THC. And we'll start with those. And if the people, if, if I don't know the people at all, um, I will have them wait. We'll do some practices. We'll do some sitting meditation, 
guided meditation, visualization, and perhaps a bit of chant, a lot of sound meditation where I'm making sounds and they're listening, um, you know, perhaps a bit of yoga or stretching, you know, that kind of thing. And then an hour and a half later, I'll know, especially if they didn't eat right away before this, and I always try to arrange it so there's at least two hours after eating before we take that edible. Mm -hmm. uh, at the hour and a half point, it's not going to go any farther. It's not going to get any more powerful, the edible. And then, then we start looking at, um, uh, you know, are you ready to go a little deeper? You want to go deeper with this? Then um, you can have a, you try another edible. We'll have some puffs, uh, which will really get things going. And then these, these small uh, mushrooms, chocolates. And then what happens is, um, you know, I work with people occasionally, I throw out a little, you know, nuggets of guidance or whatever. And then I just keep, we just keep going back, back, cycling back through these kind of practices that I just mentioned over the course of the day until about 4.30 or 5 o'clock. And, um, uh, and then doing top-ups of puffs once in a while to kind of keep the energy level up. Mm -hmm. And... Um, People report, you know, then we have sharing sessions and people go, oh, my God, I had no idea that cannabis could be this strong wow. and, you know, and opening, you know, it has its own way, obviously, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, it can be as powerful as the so-called major psychedelics, but it also has its own kind of feminine quality that that is different, you know, um, it can ease open the doors of awakening in a way that may not be. It can go as deep as far as just relaxing into, you know, what I like to sometimes call the peace that passes all understanding. That's an old phrase attributed to Jesus. Um, uh, but it seems, you know, if you relax with it, if you don't resist, uh, it, it has this kind of warm, uh, hard to describe, but both powerful and gentle at the same time quality. Whereas, you know, a similarly strong dose of something like ayahuasca I wouldn't say has a gentle quality for the most part, although people can land on, you know, a sort of a deep, peaceful opening with that too, but it tends to have a more electrified quality. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So in other words, again, answering your question from a few moments ago uh, about, uh, you know, how do you communicate or reach people? Um, they have to be open to having these kinds of experiences and then you create the right kind of container for them. Uh, you know, and then there's writing, of course, but again, no, no one's going to pick up cannabis and spirituality unless they have some interest in both cannabis and spirituality, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and that, that brings me to this sort of, one of the themes of your book that, that I picked out was that cannabis is an amplifier. And so it, 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 it seems like in every chapter it said that there, it's, there's this quality mm -hmm. of making things more experienceable in a way mm -hmm. and um so so I, I i think that was one of the biggest things for me was going through with this kind of oh if i smoke weed i'm bad and i'm a stoner and i'm frying my brain cells idea and shifting that to well if i use it with the intention to actually study and focus or make music or learn mm -hmm. something then mm -hmm. it it changes the entire experience of the plant i mean it's totally different yes absolutely yes. How do you, like, you're obviously really prolific. You've written numerous books and you teach workshops and you're a composer and photographer. And so how do you, um, is, is it an issue of discipline for you regarding mm. kind of like how much you smoke and how much you, how, how productive you are? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I can fire a few ideas out about that. Um, uh, so one aspect of the discipline vis-a-vis -vis actual smoking for me is to limit it. Um, and it kind of has a self-limiting factor for me. It's not the, not, not the case for everybody. Okay, so let me let me just try to you know kind of wend my way through this. Okay. Um, I know I know people who smoke daily, perhaps several times a day even, and are very productive people. Uh, that what it does for them, this is a very loose and general kind of explanation, and they these people themselves might describe it differently. Although one of them did describe it to me like this, and he's an extremely productive guy. I, I won't mention his name, just out of you know respect for his privacy, but. Um, he's a, a cannabis historian, and he's written several big books that involve immense amounts of research. And uh, he, every day of his life, as far as I know, uh, he has one of these um, things that look like a food processor with a great big plastic, you know, bag that comes up above it. You know, that, yeah, like a, it's, like a it's, a, it's a type of a vaporizer. Yeah, volcano. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things. Yeah. Anyway. He, He'll have a couple of puffs in the morning around about 10 or whatever after breakfast, and then he'll go to work. And then he might have a little top up mid-afternoon, perhaps another one around dinner time. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, I said, why do you do that? You know, how does that work for you? And he said, uh, it, it just calms him down a little and allows him to focus. It's almost like, uh, you know, kind of like a, the organic version of Ritalin or something, you know, that ADH people have. But it's also... Um, uh, ADHD people, um, and but it's also um, for him, per, this particular person, he said it takes the uh, edge off, he said, you know, um, his uptightness or, you know, whatever anger might come up or whatever, it just kind of calms him down, which allows him to focus more. So that's great. Um, but for the kind of work that I'm attracted to, which is deeper work, you know, somebody who listening to this might correct me on this, but this has been my experience um, and observation is you need to leave time in between. And you probably noticed that in the book, too, that came up quite a bit. You know, they say less is more. Less is more doesn't it, it almost more importantly, it doesn't necessarily mean less right now when you're doing it, although it can. Um, it, it's, it, I think, even more important in terms of less frequent um, um, because, uh, for example, this same person, he tells me he can't smoke sativas at all. They don't do anything for him, period, right? Where sativas or sativa-leaning strains are the ones that I prefer to use for this kind of work mm. because they open up the spirit and the mind as well. Um, but because of the tolerance effect from using it daily like that, uh, that he doesn't have that mind effect. He has to smoke indicas or vaporize indicas because indicas, the kinds that he is going to use anyway, have more of what they call a body stone or a body effect. So he feels that physical calming. But in a sense, he's not really getting high in the spiritual way at all. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just he doesn't have any more room for it in his psyche, basically. Exactly. The endocannabinoid yeah. uh, receptors are, are satiated oh. or filled, right? Yeah. Um, so um, for me, the discipline is, is, is uh, um, recognizing that if I do do it too often, I don't get that clarity. I don't that same kind of depth, you know, that I'm going for. I mean, I'm really interested in this ultimate potential of this plant as, as, as the 
you know, uh, what Daniel McQueen calls psychedelic cannabis or, or what, or, you know, like the, uh, the sac as, uh, Stephen Hager in cannabis and spirituality calls the sacrament of peace, you know, mm -hmm. um, that it can actually open you up to, when I say peace, I don't mean this casually or glibly, you know, like you know, people say, Oh yeah, peace brother, or, or, you know, like, uh, you know, take it easy. Let's have a little peace here or something. We're talking about, a a very visceral, felt, palpable experience of when the total peace means total release, total lack of tension uh, in the mind-body system altogether, right? Um, and cannabis can actually, you know, this amplifying effect that you talked about, if you channel it correctly, we consider it an advanced spiritual medicine that way because there's things to learn about that. And it's also challenging the ego. Uh, so um, it's not like a, just an easy walk in the park to get there, you know, and to go back there repeatedly and to learn how to bring it into the daily walk, which is, of course, even more important because, you know, again, frequency. You can't do this every day and go to these deep places. So we're, what we're really learning to do in our lives is to trust nowness, if you will, to trust um, the the ultimate unconditioned intelligence of our whole mind-body system and all our senses in this moment, these are core teachings of Buddhism and perhaps some other great traditions that that uh, we're not buying into the sort of uh, narrative package of, of concepts and beliefs that we've shipped on since the moment we were born and from other past lives probably too, um, which just tell us what's real and not real and true and untrue and all that stuff. We're actually living that and experiencing it and paying attention moment by moment following that golden thread, you know. Um, so, uh, but if I do it too often, and this is what people in the book are saying too, you know, um, uh, Mariano da Silva, uh, in his chapter, uh, he's an ayahuasca, mm -hmm. uh, an ayahuascaro and also a, a master of cannabis. And he says it can introduce you into transcendental realms. That's his language, transcendental realms. Uh, he says, but if I do it every day, don't happen, baby. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. So he, he suggests doing it you know, no more frequently than about once every five days or so. Oh, wow. I, I find, you know, for this kind of work, and again, I get no judgment on people if they want to do it in the way that I described this person a few moments ago, right? If that's the way you want to work with cannabis and you're not using it to escape dealing with life, you know, and being involved and contributing and opening your heart and being creative, um, then, you know, that's none of my business or nobody else's business for that matter. Um, but if you want to really use cannabis as a spiritual medicine to go deeper, uh, you know, and open up in a deeper way, I, I think it's, you know, almost for sure that you, you can't be doing it all the time that way because of the tolerance effect. It's not a moral issue. It's just <laughs> fizzy. It's just chemistry, right? Uh, and it's um, just about what you want, what effect you want, and what you want to create and achieve in your life. Yeah. 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 Now, you know, um, for creative work, yeah, that what I just described is another, it, this is not quite like that, you know, because let's say you're writing a book, you're probably going to, you know, the, the way most people that, you know, do it at a high level do it is they get into it, they, you know, they don't just sort of, you know, sit down, you know, once a week or something like that and write for three hours, they do it when they're working on a book, they quite likely to be doing it every day, you know. Um, and so uh, I know people who you know, I know one particular person, again, you know, respecting his privacy, he, 
he's written several books and uh, one of them well a couple of them have sold a lot one of them uh, you know i know has sold uh, over 300,000 copies nice. this we're talking about a successful writer he writes about medicines sacramental medicines and all that this particular person again i know him um and uh i asked him you know how does that work um uh he writes high right yeah. and he said uh well it's a vasodilator um which is similar to the way um it's described in cannabis and spirituality too uh, Joan Bello talks about how it speeds up the heart when you first smoke. Doesn't work quite that way when you eat it or you know take it orally, of course, because it takes you know so long to slowly come on. But if you smoke it or vaporize it, the effects are you know essentially uh, immediate, and um, and the heart speeds up a little, pumps uh, blood more blood, like an increased supply of fresh blood uh, into the whole organism. Um, so that's similar to this vasodilation aspect that this writer talks about and so he feels like it just gets him into the zone and he and he writes right but you know if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking oh yeah um when you're doing it daily like that uh you're not getting blasted for one thing again the tolerance effect you know you're used to it and also you're focusing your energy you're not sitting there you know just going i'm really high right mm -hmm. you're actually channeling that energy into into really entering into the work that you're doing um so it's a gentle kind of a high and it may he may not you might not might not even think of it as a high particularly you just think of it as a way to focus in more you know um and for some people that works uh, it's not my style and it doesn't actually really work that way for me particularly and i don't want to do that um uh I, 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 it, but again, for the creative use, um, it's sort of a different matter. And, you know, you just have to find your own way with it. My personal way, and I'm not saying that, you know, anyone else should do it my way or anything, but my personal way is I get ideas and um, I, you know, jot them down. Often, I like to say that I like to encourage people to come back to what I call the wellspring, which is the silent mind. Mm. This is where cannabis really opens up and shows you her true power, um, her true spiritual potential. Um, so even if I'm, you know, working on a creative project of some kind, um, uh, I'll get an idea, um, and I may jot a few things down or record them into my iPhone or whatever. But then, for me personally, I don't want to go on too long in that vein. Like maybe not more than, you know, I don't know, ten, twenty, thirty minutes. And then I want to keep connecting back to that wellspring because that's where the juice is. That's where the gas is, you know, and uh, um, and that gives, you know, that real connection where you feel it again. And that's the inspiration. You know, it's kind of bringing heaven down, as it were. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then maybe, a, you know, another idea will come up and I'll, you know, work with it a bit or whatever. But I, I do try to come back over and over again to this, you know, just silent sitting meditation, trying to let thoughts go so that I can fully feel her presence. Mm. Yeah. That's really neat. You call it the wellspring. It reminds me of, one of you know, I, I'm a real big fan of ayahuasca and I had this one experience where I realized that it, like that silent mind is a spring. It's pure, pure, pure consciousness and pure, mm -hmm. pure energy. Then as you get farther away from it, it kind of gets littered with like little traces of this or that and those are all like these thoughts and these limiting beliefs but you can just go back to the spring and just drink from that pure place mm -hmm. absolutely yeah that's amazing that you you had sort of a similar similar thing well i 
you know, I, I work with, you know, these other medicines as well uh, here and there, um, especially ayahuasca these days, not doing it all the time, but uh, I've actually uh, connected with a local Santo Daime group. That's the uh, Brazilian syncretic church that works with ayahuasca as their sacrament. Um, and I probably do four or five ceremonies a year with them roughly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so that's, you know, other than cannabis, that's really, and these small amounts of mushrooms included with cannabis sometimes is kind of, you know, my medicine work these days, but you know, I've, I've, you know, taken larger doses of psilocybin in the past, you know, LSD here and there. Um, I was involved with the native American church for about a dozen years with the peyote sacrament and that's very powerful stuff um but cannabis um as i say has this potential too in its own you know kind of warmer gentler way you know language is always tricky and everyone's experience is different anyway but and it's also um, accessible it's what more accessible oh yeah that's a key point yeah it's accessible i you know you, you may have noticed in the book uh um i borrowed a term from one of the contributors jeremy wolf who refers to cannabis as the people's psychedelic i love it I, yeah I, I, I like that term and i borrowed it and changed it a little and i've been calling it the people's plant um uh, uh you know just to take that little edge of you know the word psychedelic off for some people it's called the people's plant because it's not just a psychedelic obviously right yeah. so it's it's the people's plant in the largest sense it's like nobody no authority has the right to tell us not to use that plant and we can use it for um, relaxation, so-called recreation, um, uh, just enjoying things more. We can use it for a, a wide range of medicinal benefits. We can use it for creative stimulation, um, uh, and or and none of those things are necessarily completely separate from using, you know, distinct from using it as a psychedelic. I mean, pardon me, a spiritual, uh, uh, deepening, empowering medicine, but that too, obviously, right? Yeah. 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 Let alone food, clothes, fuel. I mean, building materials. Well, yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> pardon yeah. me, didn't mean to neglect those. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's the people's plant. Um, but you know, when you talk about this pure spring, uh, this wellspring, the term I've been using, uh, uh, it's it's the idea that when you come back to silence, and this is a key teaching of great spiritual. Uh, masters have understood this right you know and through through religion sometimes you know the the inner mystical traditions uh, some traditions like buddhism is mostly a, you know well it was originally more of a mystical tradition and you know it becomes an everyday or sunday religion you know culturally as well but there's a very strong uh, you know deep inner mystical kind of uh, you know uh, thread through the history of buddhism and all the other religions have that as well and islam it tends to be this it has in the past at least been the sufis and the sufis uh, it's been you know they've moved away i believe unless they're doing it in secret that not writing about it they've moved away from the use of cannabis but you know in roughly from what this is super loose history you know but maybe from roughly a thousand of the common era the you know christian era to roughly 15, 16, 1700 in there, in the Middle East, the Sufis were using hashish uh, uh, as their central sacrament. Mm. Uh, I think I quoted actually in either in the current book, or in Cannabis and Spirituality, or in my earlier book, Returning to Sacred World, I quoted um, a Sufi poet named Fuzali, F U Z 
Uli, um, from around 1498, saying mm -hmm. hashish is the Sufi master. Oh, wow. ha hashish is the Sufi master. Why? Because of this ampling, amplifying effect, it just deepens you. So in that sense, it's not a drug at all if you use it properly. Uh, you know, properly from the spiritual point of view, um, it's a reality medicine. Yeah. You know, it's the Sufi master, right? Hashish. Um, yeah. yeah. Hashish is the Sufi master because it's also a mirror, right? It. This is why a lot of people don't feel comfortable with cannabis, actually, because it shows you the truth. It shows you your vulnerabilities under this, you know, attempt to put some kind of bulwark together, bulwark, you know, as a fortress and this kind of vehicle that can carry you through life, you know, so we have to build this up and we have to fortify it and we have to protect it and maintain it and all these things. And, uh, and underneath that is the sort of soft, tender heart, you know, um, and that we're afraid of because it's taking us out of this sort of, you know, self-protecting, vehicle if you will um so so a lot of people don't like it for that reason because it's also a truth mirror you know yeah yeah uh, anyway that, that's kind of like the, the whole paranoid thing that comes up for people yeah, yeah that's how i understand it yeah yeah i love that about it though it really it it does it amplifies things and also it takes off layers of personality and i i got to smoke recently with my mom and she's almost 70 and we laughed yes. for literally like two hours straight. I mean, just uproarious laughter. And it was because we were no longer mother and son. We were just two people uh, Sweet. having a good yeah. time. Yeah, it was, it was a really remarkable experience. Mm -hmm. um, That's nice. Yeah. You know, um, uh, let me, just a comment on that. And, you know, no judgment implied whatsoever. But, um, I, I, you know, laughing is great, of course. You know, they say laughter is the best medicine. However, for, you know, just for just to put a thought in there, um, what if you and your mom had actually not that you should have or could have or whatever in that situation or ever with your mom for all I know, but if you and your mom uh, had actually been able to because you know laughter is like thinking. There's always there's something going on. You know, there's you filling up your mind and you're kind of carried away with this, and that's great. You know. But what if you and your mom had been able to actually just sit in silence, even for a short period of time, 15, 20 minutes, and practice meditation, uh, and the med kind of meditation where you just watch your thoughts come up and let them go, and just totally, you know, because laughter, you know, isn't a particularly relaxed thing in a sense either, you know, like there's a lot of muscle activity going on there, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, like, you know, what if you had been able, you know, just as an example, right? What if you had been able to, two of you, just to say, okay, why don't we just uh, sit down and do some silent meditation for 15 minutes or something, you know? Um, or even put on some very, very spacious music and just listen to it and not think and, you know, see if we can get out of our heads and just enter into it. Because that's the, that's the other aspect of this silence, inner silence thing. It's, it's, um, uh, our thinking mind is what creates a filter, you know, an obscuration between us and the phenomenal world. You, know, you could say the spiritual world as well, or the phenomenal world is in a sense no different. So, um, uh, you know, people write about this, how you can, you can become one with the object of your attention, right? And the way you do that, as I understand it, is that you let go of your head stuff, right? Yeah. 
um, and you just empty into that, you know. So music is fantastic for that, or even just sound. And it could be any sound, actually. Well, maybe not any sound. Maybe not. A little difficult to do that with a chainsaw, you know. But yeah. um, but uh, I'll give you a, a quick example. I went to a concert one time with a friend, like a sort of a bowl-like theater with you know sloped seating, you know, really nice kind of, you know, somewhat intimate, probably three hundred seats, something like that. Um, beautiful theater, nice acoustics and all that. And um, we had some quite strong cannabis uh, you know, just before we went in. We stepped out, you know, like 20 minutes before the show started. The band came on and um, and had like two or three puffs each. And when we went back in, he had to go to the bathroom. And I think he went and got himself a drink or something like that, you know, pop or whatever. And so I was left alone sitting in this theater and kind of like right in the middle of all these people for about 10 or 15 minutes. And so there was nothing going on. They weren't playing any music on the sound system before the band came on. There were just 300 people softly talking to each other. And so I was quite high. I mean, I was quite deep into it. And so I just sat there, you know, a few thoughts came up, but also a lot of the time I just listened. I just emptied myself into the into the soundscape of that room with the people talking. And it was delightful. It was just, it sounded like a little babbling brook, you know, a murmuring brook. And I thought, that's just God in the same way as complete silence is, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I, I just, I, I love that. I, I love that suggestion, Stephen, of doing that with my, my mom. I don't think I've ever just sat quietly with either of my parents. And in a way, that's a gift that I could share with them because that's such an important part of, you know, mm -hmm. practice in my day. Uh, you know, the hardest thing to do is to empty into complete silence for most of us, if not all of us, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why that's the purest, most powerful kind of meditation in a sense, is to completely silence the mind with no crutches, if you will, you know. Um, in other words, no object that you're paying attention to. You're just, it's called awareness practice. You know, the basic meditation practice that I was taught was you just, pay attention to your breath, but you don't even over-focus on that. You just use it as a way to come back when you've gone off in your head, you know, like maybe you're thinking about tomorrow or yesterday or any old thing, doesn't matter. Um, uh, at a certain point, you might recognize, oh, yes, I've just been in my head thinking about this. So at that point, without any judgment at all, you know, as to the content of the material, this is much better than Christian moralizing, for example. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm a bad person because I had a bad thought, or I'm a fantastic person because I just created the most genius idea. Mm -hmm. It's just let it go <laughs> right there and then, you know, mm -hmm. and come back to using the breath that happens by itself as your um, kind of, uh, you know, guide or golden thread or anchor back into being fully present in the moment, right? That's the hardest practice in a sense you know the hardest thing for humans to do is just let go of all that thinking altogether when you don't need to do it you know Eckhart Tolle said you know the thinking mind is something you should treat as a tool that you you have control over you, you pick it up when you want to use it for something but don't let it rule you if you don't need to use it right then put it down and just be present he claimed that he could sit for two hours without a thought you know maybe he could and you know that kind of idea but anyway I'm, what I'm getting at is that that uh, entering into silence without the assistance in the sense of an object to put your attention on is, I think, the hardest thing to do. So as an intermediary step, so to speak, um, having a focus of attention 
a locus of attention um, can be very helpful and sound is really good for that uh, uh, because it's right there it's all in the now right you know like there's what happened five seconds ago is irrelevant it's like the sound right now and you just go into it um, uh, an another one that you know people might try that i particularly like and you know i'd kind of like to go proselytizing on this one is um wind you know if there's a if there's a strong enough wind for you to really feel it on your body um if you have uh, this is for me I, I i do this whenever i not whenever i can but you know often it happens um if i'm out somewhere and i'm exposed you know with the wind i'll face the wind you know if i have a have a couple of tokes whatever mm -hmm. and then i'll just stand there and try to empty my thoughts and just feel the wind you know coming all over me and you can kind of hear it going by your ears you feel it on your face and your body you know your torso your arms your legs etc and it's and you know some winds are just you know kind of like steady 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 but almost all winds have little nuances you know and they're moving they're not you know they may seem like they're coming from one direction but they're slight you know different directions and coming at you in different ways and um i just found that a number of times a really exquisite thing to do just it's you know it's like you're dancing with a phenomenal world you empty into it you know so it could be anything it could be the sound of a bird it could be a babbling brook you know it could be a murmur of voices it could be almost anything that's not you know grating on your system that way <laughs> and maybe, maybe even those things you could get into as well if maybe if they're not too loud you know chainsaws two blocks away or something i don't know but you know basically what i'm saying is that uh you know for people who may not really be able to handle just sitting in silence that easily. Um, I would encourage people to at least try that because that's where the pure power of cannabis is most uh, present. But, um, you know, uh, having a focus of some kind or another to get into can be really helpful as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm amazed that you're an author. I don't know how authors actually put thoughts together into coherent uh, works like that to share with mm -hmm. just, It just amazes me. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your habits as a writer and how cannabis is a part of that um, process. Uh-huh. Well, like I said earlier in the conversation, I don't write high. Um, I get ideas high and I jot things down. Or occasionally, you know, later in a set, Okay, so maybe I should tell you how I generally use cannabis. Um, uh, for the most part, you know, with variations and also, but you know, it's really different if I'm doing the ceremonies. I will typically do it twice a week, because, like I was saying earlier, anything more than you know three days at the minimum, I start noticing uh, that that sharpness and clarity and open space and ethereal kind of subtle. It's powerful, but it's a subtle thing as well, you know, and as soon as you put something in there, um, you know, even, even just picking up the guitar and playing, I, I don't notice how strong it is, you know, it really does take being in that silence to connect with it at that level. And I, I really appreciate that capability of cannabis, cannabis to be a non-specific amplifier. So <laughs> my typical practice uh, with it in an ongoing way is I try to get at least one time a week where I'm just alone and I'm sitting and I'm starting in meditation, thanking the plant and I'll sit in meditation for a while. Um, thoughts will come, thoughts will go. But, you know, like I said, I use that practice that I was describing of just coming back to the breath 
And then if I'm really keen on a project at that time, I'll maybe, as I say, go, you know, jot down a few ideas or just things to come back to later. Like, uh, you know, I'll say, write about this, you know, mm. or I'll write a sentence out or something like that, or I'll record a, you know, a, a minute or two into my iPhone and my voice memos, that sort of thing. But then I keep wanting to come back to it. Sometimes I'll want to go a little further with the creative stuff and actually focus on it for a longer period of time and then come back to the, to the wellspring. That's one way. And then the other thing that I often do, it probably only happens about two out of every four weeks on average, is a friend of mine who also appreciates cannabis in a similar way comes over and we play music together. Um, but we make it into a kind of a, I guess I call it a ceremony light doing it that way as well. So we sit in silence, we, we hit the gong, call it a ceremony, sit in silence for a few minutes, uh, dedicate the smoking to somebody or something or, you know, prayers or whatever, have a puff in silence or two maybe, sit in silence for another five minutes or so, play music for, say, three quarters of an hour to an hour and repeat that process. Um, and then don't really get into significant conversation until we hit the gong at the end. And then we have a little kind of, you know, just casual chat or whatever, right? So yes. those, are, those are the ways that I, I tend to use it. I don't tend to um, do sustained creative work under the influence. Others, as I say, do, like that writer that I mentioned, right? Um, but that's a light kind of a, you know, getting in the zone thing. And I'm more attracted to the idea of using it to deepen my experience significantly in the moment. Um, so what was the other part of that question again? Can you refresh? The part about um, habits. Uh, oh, right. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't um, offer myself as any kind of example of, you know, good writer habits or anything like that. I, I know both from, I'm always interested in that kind of thing with writers and anything right, you know, good writers have to say about how they do it and so on. And so I, I occasionally read interviews and I've known some, some good writers. And um, I think, uh, you know, if you're a really disciplined writer, uh, you do things like, you know, this fellow I know that would get up at five o'clock every morning and uh, uh, wrote for four or five hours. Mm. Um, and that was it. And he was, he was quite remarkable, actually, because he was, he, was, he was also an MD, this guy, and he was retired. So he didn't, money wasn't an issue. He, he didn't need to go to work after that. This is when he was in his late 60s. He'd been writing all his life. He was actually a poet, uh, was he a poet laureate or playwright laureate or something from Singapore originally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but he moved over to Canada and was actually a neighbor of mine. And um, in any case, uh, yeah, that's what he did. He was super disciplined, and a lot of writers are, you know. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Tom Robbins? The... Oh, of course. Yeah, well, he's one of my faves. Um, yeah. I read an interview with him where he said, I don't know what time he started, but he wrote every day till till noon, and that was it. And so you can actually have a very uh, enjoyable, relaxed kind of lifestyle if that's what you're doing. I mean, Tom Robbins was making enough money from his writing, and he didn't need you know, to have another job or anything. And the same with my friend, uh, uh, Go, his name was Go, um, or Po Sing, actually, Go Po Sing, um, Chinese name. Anyway, uh, you know, these are people, they write, uh, they get up and they do it when they're fresh, you know, so that, you know, it's not, not my way of doing things because I just don't do it like that. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not that disciplined. And I'm not that, I'm not writing all the time anyway. I mean, I'm, I, I haven't written, I haven't been writing a book since, you know, that book. And I only wrote four or five of the chapters in that book anyway. Uh, yeah. 
the the first book I wrote was was all my writing, and uh, that was I had just you know left uh, a longer career as a, an elementary school music teacher that I did for twenty years, and so I had a pension and you know some other little monies coming in here and there, and so I didn't need to go to a job or anything. So that's what I did for a year when I first left that job. Um, was I that was my main focus? I every day you know I wrote so. I think more than um, you know. It we're also there's differences between fiction and nonfiction writing, right? I think yeah. with fiction writing in particular, and I'm sure some people would correct me on this. This is just my understanding. Um, you're imagining worlds and scenarios, and I think it's really important that you spend as much time in them as possible on a continuing basis. You know, mm. um, you have to enter in those worlds. You know, you really have to enter inside it, and you have to live it. You know, you have to breathe it, you have to sweat it, you have to cry it, you know, you mm. have to become as, you know, those characters to a large degree. I know those are my favorite kind of writers where they talk about, they don't necessarily, they don't know where the story is going because the characters take on a life of their own and that wow. determines where the story is going. Yeah. Nonfiction writing is different. You're doing a different kind of research perhaps. Um, and, you know, you're trying to put together arguments and that sort of thing. You know, you're making cases and that sort of thing. It may be different. So for me, that's, I'm not a fiction writer. So I didn't necessarily feel like I had to be at a, you know, in that same way. You know, I just wrote when I found the time. So that's a kind of a typically long-winded way uh, for me anyway of, yeah. of uh, describing that I'm, you know, there are attitudes and practices and habits of writers that can be very effective. You know, writing when you're fresh, first thing in the morning is often good. Like I say, uh, some people would say they wouldn't stop until they had three good pages, three pages they could use, right? And then they quit. I think Stephen King was something like that. He maybe still is. He's, he'd write until he had X number of pages. It wasn't much, I don't think. I think it was Stephen King. Don't quote me on that, folks. But um, some writer, a really successful writer, I remember him saying he wrote, uh, his goal was to write X number of pages that didn't have to be thrown away and rewritten or, you know, editing later, but basically three solid pages. And then that was it. If he did that in an hour or two, that's all he'd do for the day. If it took him all day, he, he, that's what he did, right? <laughs> Yeah. 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 So, um, and then, you know, and then I answered your question about cannabis. I, I, I don't write under the influence particularly. And, you know, again, some people can, but it's not my preference. Uh, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Certain things I can't do. Like I can't not do it in the daytime. It just doesn't work. It, it's more like an evening thing. Yeah. Me yeah. too, generally, except when I'm doing these ceremonies where we're, do, we're going at it all day, you know? Yeah. What about what about the munchies? Did you, did you ever get the munchies, and how did you deal with the munchies? Well, that's a really interesting one, actually, Chris, because um, uh, I, I, I had uh, gotten con was contacted by the publisher of the, the Common Ground in San Francisco, Rob Sidon, and yeah. he asked me to write about cannabis and spirit cannabis and spirituality, and I did. And then he contacted me again a few months later and asked me if I would write about the munchies. Um, with cannabis, and um, so um, I did some 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 research, uh, just online research, and I don't remember the details now. Um, I just remember the kind of the the gist of it. It turns out that the monk the munchies with cannabis is a trick, um, in the sense that I mean it's it's a wonderful trick if you need to eat, you know, like if you're ill and you don't have an appetite. 
you know, if you're HIV positive or something like that, or, you know, cancer, um, the, the appetite stimulating function of cannabis is a, a true blessing, obviously. But for the rest of us that don't need to eat, you know, if you, you know, let's say you ate, you know, X amount of food at dinner time on Monday, and then you didn't smoke cannabis that evening, then you, you know, you ate plenty of food, you didn't feel hungry, you didn't eat for the rest of the evening, you went to bed and got up in the morning. Then the next night you ate the exact same meal and leftovers, whatever, same quantity, same food, everything. Then you feel hungry two hours later, right? Mm -hmm. You have the same amount of food in your body. You didn't actually need to eat, right? right. You weren't actually hungry. That's the trick. This is what I learned from reading. Okay. Is that this is the part I don't remember is, the, is you know, what's going on. But it tricks some chemical triggers in your brain to make you think you're hungry, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, going along with that is this... Um, what I said, you know, what we've been talking about, the amplifying effect, like the increased flow of blood into all extremities, which, which is, I believe, the explanation for why music, we tend to hear more in it and appreciate it, and um, why food can taste even better than it normally does, you know, that kind of thing. Visual acuity, you know, like if you get high and stare at a beautiful painting, it can, you go, wow, I never appreciated that painting to the same level. This is what's so wonderful about cannabis, you know, it could deepen us into the moment but um you don't actually you didn't actually need to eat when you had the munchies right you're not going to go hungry <laughs> if you've eaten you know a normal amount of food um so what i find is i will i i will indulge just you know just because i'm a spoiled baby you know at the <laughs> at the end of the evening but uh -huh. you know like if i sit down at 7 30 and I do what I was describing to you earlier on my alone night with it, right? Um, yeah. I, I'll be there until 11, 11.30 midnight, and I'm not going to go into the kitchen at that point. Yeah. You know, I, I might feel hungry. But I, you know what? If you're channeling the – this is my experience anyway. If you're channeling that energy, you know, in the way that I've been describing during our conversation, I don't tend to notice the munchies anyway. And, 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 you know, there's a, there's what you might call a little discipline involved in that for some people too. Like the munchies come up, it's a trick. You don't need the food right then. You just have a desire. It gives you the des desire because of, you know, these things we're talking about, the trick that it plays in the brain. Um, there's words for it that I read for this article, but I don't remember any of them at the moment. Um, and I never will if I don't read it again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it, there, there wasn't a, you know, biological, physiological need to eat there. It's just a trick of the brain, so to speak. And as I say, the enhanced amplification of sense of experience, right? So if you let that go, and uh, people may have noticed this with hunger in general anyway. Um, I notice if I, get, if I get hungry and I don't eat, I tend to forget about it, you know. I mean, if you get super hungry and you're not getting enough food in your life, that's a whole other issue, obviously, you know, if you're having yeah. some level of starvation. But, you know, if you feel hunger at four o'clock, um, you know, and you know you're going to be eating in a couple of hours and you don't indulge it, it tends to go away, I find, you know, it just tends yeah. to ease up. Um, so, you know, same when you're working with cannabis. If your intention is to be with it, stay with it. You don't need to go and have that, that thing. And on top of that, that's another aspect of it, too. You know, this is... Sean and Steve in the Cannabis and Spirituality book talk a little bit about this. Um, oh, the Himalayan salt, right? 
Well, that no, no, that's for um, adding a yes, yes, it is that that discussion actually. It's yeah. but the Himalayan salt is instead of having some food, right? Because yeah. um, you know you, it it raises your electrolytes a little and it maybe takes away that desire. Um, uh, but what Steve or Sean I think said in there is that um, if you eat food like solid food and especially if it's uh, fatty and sugary, fatty and or sugary. Um, it's going to um, dampen, significantly dampen the uh, effect of the, the sort of spiritual opening, you know, airy, uh, ethereal almost quality. That it's kind of a refined energy that you tune into with cannabis or can tune into with cannabis. It's going to get rid of that, you know. Plus you're in there doing something instead of sort of staying with, you know, working with it as a spiritual ally in that sense. But nonetheless, I mean, in the kitchen, you know, you're in the making things and blah, blah, and distracting yourself. But, you know, more importantly, it's actually going to bring you down. And in fact, if you want to come down, eat a bunch of fatty and sugary food. <laughs> you know? okay. Yeah. People, people tell me oranges will counteract the effects of, of THC as well. I haven't really tried that as an antidote. Um, oh. And of course, CBD uh, is is said to um, counteract the effects of THC. But that's another issue for spiritual work. If you find you're in a little over your head, you know that you're having difficulty opening up to the power of that energy. Um, ideally, you want to keep working with that rather than just try to get rid of it, right? You yeah. know, get rid of it. It's like you know, like trying to get rid of an ayahuasca energy or something too, right? You know, you don't, you know, you're there to learn something from it. You're there to change. You're there to expand. You're there to let go. So you want to breathe. Um, you, um, you want to breathe and work with that energy, maybe move a little if you have to, um, but, uh, um, you know, not try to mitigate it. So, hey, thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Um, you don't have a website, but I will talk about your book. I do have a website, cannab oh, cannabisandspirituality.com. Um, com. I, I neglect it for the most part. Um, occasionally, I'll add another article on there, but um, I don't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, uh, cannabisandspirituality.com. Mostly, I, um, I keep the Facebook uh, page group thing. Okay. fairly active, you know, by sharing posts that people send me and occasionally putting, cool. putting something fresh on. Yeah. Well, it's an awesome book. I really, I mean, it, I just, I underlined so much. I could not take my eyes off it. It was just really profoundly inspiring and, and enlightening. So I, I appreciate your work and I really appreciate you doing this interview. Mm -hmm. you're, you're most welcome. Right on. Thank you, Stephen. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed that podcast. This is just something else, isn't it? I mean, learning how to learn how to bake right. That's really what it is. Yeah, I just I really resonated with um, some of the key points here. Uh, really, really feeling right off the bat, Stephen got in, into a little bit the the golden thread, and really it was just just before this interview where I was starting to think, man, it's like reading this book and thinking about who else to interview. It's like, it's like following this thread. And then Steven's like, yeah, I, I follow the golden thread. Um, I like what he said about you make an offering 
you offer something. So in this case, you know, this podcast or reaching out to someone, that's my offering. And then you see where it goes. And the guy like Stephen might answer and say, yeah, I'm not too proud or uh, too famous yet to, uh, to do a, a podcast interview. Um, really liked what Stephen was saying about the, the habits of ganja um, and the different ways to use it. You know, it, it, and, and I hope what that does for my beloved listeners, as it has done for me, is for me to sort of take a step back and, and look at my own habits. Um, for me, I'm pretty much like an every evening kind of smoker. Um, however, I'm training for a marathon right now, guys, and it's coming up pretty soon. Um, I got about a month ago, July 28th, San Francisco Marathon. And I, I'm like, yeah, I've been training for months, but I got to pick up my game. You know, I want to get faster. And I'm noticing that I can't really smoke so much because in the morning, even if it's only a few puffs, I really feel um, I feel it in my lungs. I can't get enough oxygen. I love ganja so much. And so it's helped me to look at that habit, switching more to edibles um, and also switching more just to smoking less. I really liked what he was saying too about the potency of ganja and to be able to use it more as a psychedelic to really get the real power from, from ganja. Uh, you need to use it less because you can't keep you know, bombarding yourself with like these cosmic revelations and experiences when you're doing it so often. Having said that, there's nothing wrong with doing it so often. Everyone's different. You find your own, you know, you find your own way. You might be the kind of guy like my bro Adam, who likes to smoke it from the morning all day long. You might be somebody, you know, and I know like Mike Tyson does that. And a lot of people do that. Why I said Mike Tyson, I don't know, just because I probably just listened to his podcast not too long ago. Um, or Adam and I used to like be big Mike Tyson fans when we were little. But fact of the matter is the ganja habits, If it, you can start to look at your own habits, your own relationship with ganja and see like what you want. Do you want it to be just an everyday thing where you're really not going that deep in with it, but it provides some kind of like relaxation or focus in your day? Or do you want to use it more as a psychedelic where the few times in the week where you do use it, you're able to go really deep into sort of a visionary realm? Um, and I also was really, really digging what Stephen was saying with like how he creates these ceremonies with ganja, much like an ayahuasca or peyote ceremony, but the sacrament is, is uh, cannabis and, and, and how that um, creates a container that can deepen the experience of the plant and the plant's intelligence for healing and insight. And I, and I, I think that's really neat. You know, he, I mentioned, you know, smoking with my mom and he wasn't judgmental or anything, but he said, yeah, and here's another thing you can do instead of just laughing, which is kind of a, almost like a, a, there's always something involved, like some kind of a talk, but to go deeper, to sink deeper, like the next level down would just be to, to be in silence, to create, you know, an intentional little silent time. And I think that's really neat. Um, well, yeah, let's see what else we got here. We started, you know, moving in. He, I, I really liked how he was starting to move into more of a sort of a Vedantic, Advaita Vedantic sort of satsang around uh, like 20 minutes halfway through uh, where he was getting into, you know, being in the present moment and, and the art of, of stopping the mind that we actually have that ability to turn off this 
tool, which oftentimes is a tool that's sort of Frankenstein turned around back on us and is sort of the running the show. But when we learn to turn it off, then we can learn to have it be a tool that is that that um, we use instead of it using us. I love the Sufi saying, hashish is the Sufi, Sufi master that that Sufi master said back in the day. Um, I've thought so often in the past, like, man, it's like, this is a teacher. This plant is somehow an intelligent teacher that's helping me see things clearly. And, um, and, and there it's been said for, for, for centuries, this it's the Sufi master, like, awesome, man. I can get a Sufi master from my buddy down the street. I can go be with a Sufi master just swing by the dispensary and pick up a Sufi master. I think that's so rad. And again, that for me, that brings in another element of, of like wanting to like really honor that presence and to use herb in in a way where I can really sit with that master instead of being distracted with like all this to-do list shit, you know, like the humdrum of the day. Having said that, sometimes it's really helpful to get high and do boring shit. It really has a way of making boring shit a lot more fun. Um, yeah, the, yeah, and I love also what he said about the munchies. You know, it's something, I mean, I don't struggle with it so much anymore because I have realized that when I smoke, I, I want to channel it in a certain way. And then I don't get the munchies because I'm like, I'm too involved in the yoga practice or I'm too in the flow with my music and then it's time for bed or something like that. But, oh man, I mean, it still comes up. The other night I, I just tore up, tore the fridge apart, man. I had so much food. Um, and it's funny. It is funny. It's a trick. It's like, it's an illusion inside your body. It's like, you're not hungry. There's no reason to eat, but you just seem ravaged, you know, like starving. And, um, that is really not actually true. You're not hungry. You're just like stoned. So go get distracted and do something other else that's creative or something. You know what I mean? Anyway, all, all in all, I think that, um, this interview went really well. I think that, this is a wonderful first little sort of bead or a little notch in the golden thread of Miracle Soup. Not even the first. I mean, this is, we, we've had the beginning episodes. We've had the different insights through the episodes. We had the uh, first real interview with Adam, I'd say, um, Curing the Addiction of Misery, and now Stephen Gray. And it's just the sky's the limit. Who knows who it's going to be? I've got some great ideas. Um, for authors of um, and, and experts on on uh, microdosing and other practices, uh, I'd really like to get some ultra marathon runners on here. Um, so anyway, yeah, it is a great time to be alive. All these medicines are becoming legal; they're becoming more available. All this information through YouTube and podcasts are reminding us to evolve and to step up into a new. Um, a new version of ourselves where we're learning. We have access to all these ancient techniques such as yoga. We have guys inspiring us like David Goggins. 
we got a, we got all these amazing all this amazing information to help us in this situation that we find ourselves on this planet it's like pretty dark and seemingly um dismal in a lot of ways with the whole global warming and all the conspiracies and this dude in the white house and yada 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 and all the plastic and the ocean and the fifth grade extinction that you know we're creating um and amidst all this we have this tremendous flood of like potent information that we can utilize to literally change and transform our minds our physiology our relationships and it's just like to me it's just fucking fascinating so hope you guys uh enjoyed this please if you haven't already and if this isn't like the worst podcast ever go ahead and uh, hit subscribe and if you have a hot minute to leave a little review, that would mean so much because that would that would help this movement, the Miracle Soup movement, um, gain some traction, gain some momentum, and it would help other people um, have access to this information as well. So hit that subscribe, leave a little review. I appreciate you guys. And if you if you want to reach out um, with any questions or or suggestions for an episode, please let me know. Um, and I will try to address them and do my best to keep pumping out kick-ass podcasts for you and for us and for humanity at large. So, um, yeah, and enjoy your, your Sufi masters, everybody, and, and use it in a good way with just an open heart and with a good intention and know that it's, um, it's a powerful medicine that's here, here to help us. It's a loving presence. So all the best. Um, until next time. Peace. Hey, so I'm here uh, at the park with my friend Adam, our, my sort of co-host on the show, Miracle Soup. I was just meditating um, here at the park in Nevada City, and then I opened my eyes and I'm like, who is that guy with the two dogs? I totally recognize. Oh my God, it's Adam. Just huh. out of the ethers. So we're here talking about the power. I don't even know what we're talking about, but it was so fun. We're talking <laughs> yeah. about the Adam's power. on a roll, basically, because changing your mind changes everything. It literally, it fucking changes everything. Everything. Everything changes with one thought. And that's what's so cool about positive thinking and law of attraction and and uh and and positive thinking as a whole is if you're having a really bad day if you're having a really bad life say 39 and a half years of a really bad fucking life it all changes with a thought yeah and then another and another another, and another another, unfortunately though much like uh david goggins one of our heroes talks about we (laughs) have to callous the mind right so you're not your mind's been thinking of negative thought after negative thought after negative thought your whole life it was trained to do that by television by your parents by their parents by society by school by educators it's just trained to do that so you have to think of your mind like crossfit or like working out in the gym and you have to work it out to the point where you're training yourself to think more positive than negative thoughts it is it's like a muscle right because i noticed with my mind it is a muscle i'll get i'll get a it's momentum going like abraham was talking about adam and i went to go see abraham not too long ago and they talked about you guys got to stop nightmaring and start daydreaming more yeah quit these nightmaring scenarios and and i'm like 
that's where the muscle comes in. You, you're able to catch yourself nightmaring, and you might have all this momentum in a nightmaring fantasy in your mind about how bad shit's gonna be, but then you get the muscle to be like, no, it stops right now. Here's a mantra, here's an affirmation, yeah. here's a visualization of something that I want to happen, and here's gratitude, and you build that muscle to like change that current like as soon as possible before it gets the 17 seconds of momentum. Yeah, it's an exercise routine though that nobody's used to. And this just flashed into my mind, but like you think of the Boy Scouts, right? And back in the 40s and the 50s when the Boy Scouts were formed, their motto is something along the lines of always be prepared, right? Yeah, yeah. So what we're trained to do as a society, at least what I was trained to do, is I am always trained to think of the worst case scenario. Yeah. And it's almost like a Boy Scout mentality, like, oh, I'm going to the park today with my kids, let's figure out and plan for the worst case scenario. And that's the nightmaring part. And that's why I'm really glad you brought that up because that was my favorite part of meeting with Esther and Abraham as they talked about nightmaring and how as kids we spend all this time daydreaming and imagining and creating and then as adults we take all this time nightmaring and we're yeah. always thinking about what's the worst case scenario and if you're always thinking the worst case scenario that's what you're attracting that's what you're gonna get yeah and it's so easy to change it's like I think people get so overwhelmed with like all these psychological labels like oh I'm depressed and I'm bipolar and I'm this and that and I have these issues from the past but it's like that's only one thought occurring right now in the moment and it can change right now it can and I have to say you know my my escape from an addiction of misery after 40 years I I um, did the mental exercise combined with the physical exercise yeah and that's what I really want to get across to people is really powerful is when you're if you're training your mind to think positive thoughts also be training your body to do um, positive things you should be working out you should be physical every day and uh, you know one of our heroes my hero and specifically Les Brown talks about Les Brown. it just starts with a couple push-ups okay yeah. so if you haven't done a push-up in 40 years it doesn't matter get on the floor do as many as you can and the next day do one more and the next day do one more and get committed and I'm saying when you get committed to that physical health that mental health comes with it and I just there's just it's very hard for me to believe that you can have complete mental health and physically have your body be out of shape yeah. and out of tune. So I would say if you can throw in that starting to work out and getting a physical routine, listening to really positive podcasts, motivational speakers like Les Brown, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, all the greats, man. Everyone laid out the path. I mean, the path of happiness has been laid out by for thousands of years mm -hmm. by the great thinkers, right? Everything yeah. comes down to our thought and our beliefs. Yeah. So what do you want, Christoph? Do you I want, want a happy life or do yeah. you want a nightmare life? <laughs> He's eating more vegetables these days, which lends to more flatulence. Just had a salad. That was my first salad in, in a long time. I'm, I'm glad to be back on board. Yeah, I want to... Yeah, totally, man. I mean, obviously, everyone wants a good life. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants abundance and prosperity. But I think that... But we're creating what we don't want. We're taught, we're we're taught, to, we're taught to nightmare. Yeah. And, and look at the, and like the news, dude. Oh, man. Well, that's the whole thing, which is in order for our society to have a really conscious evolution and change, we have to start turning off the news. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be paying attention to what's going on, but 90% of the news is so much bad information and fear-mongering and scare tactics by the powers of be that it lends everybody to these nightmare scenarios. Like, you want to know why you're going to bed and you're nightmaring or why when you're going uh, on a trip with your kids or somewhere you're worried about a terrorist attack or something's crazy? It's because of you're, you're digesting the news and the newspaper and the really nasty stuff in the media that's doing nothing but 
teaching you that this world is a negative and scary place. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, this world could be a dream if you were willing to choose a positive thought instead of a negative thought. Yeah, and, and I think like one of the things that that comes down to too, it's like the news and the media and, and the powers that be and like the voice of the world, so to speak, or the adversary, it's like always trying to convince you that there's a problem that has power over you outside of yourself. Like there's this thing called lack because there's not enough in the world yep. outside or this person's not gonna pay you enough or this person fucked you over, he's not gonna pay you or all the food is polluted or like all these things. It's like point finger outside, all these problems are outside. But what I love about like this, like the Abraham teachings and all the teachings that we're, we're talking about is that it repoints the direction to the, the real ultimate authority, the ultimate power is the source that is within each one of us. And that is the same source that's created the heavens and the earth and the stars and the plants and, and everything. And it's like nothing can trump that power. Not, not even Donald Trump can trump that power, right? But he, but he, and here's the thing. They can't trump that power, but for thousands of years, they've convinced us that we don't have that power. Yeah. And actually, it has a lot to do with Christianity and the Christian church, and especially the Spanish missionaries. Yeah. And when the Spanish missionaries first got down to Mesoamerica, they made psilocybin and mushrooms illegal immediately. And if you were caught with them, you were murdered That's crazy. or mutilated. And you know what they called it? They called it... Uh, it lended these uh, natives into pagan rituals of worshiping the earth. And they were afraid that if their white people in Europe could eat these mushrooms and connect to God without walking into their church and repenting, that their whole facade would fall apart. Yeah. And so the whole, just specifically getting back to one of my favorite substances, psilocybin, the whole reason psilocybin was wiped off of the map and went into hiding in uh, Central and South America and Latin America was because of the Spanish missionaries and how brutal they were okay. and how scared they were of these mushrooms and what they did to the people. And it's interesting to see how that belief has just been passed down generation to Mycophobia. The whole time. It's mycophobia. Yeah, fear mycoph of mushrooms. It just gets passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down. It's just absurd. Like, It's totally absurd. Open your eyes and... What actually is true well, for you? What, what do you think? What do you think that says when the powers that be or who's ever in charge says that you shouldn't eat a fungus or you shouldn't that means smoke you a plant? Should eat and probably eat means and you smoke you, you should do what they're saying yeah. not to do. In the same way, when you're your teenager, your parents say don't do this, you go do it. Come on, man. There's a reason that the government doesn't want people uh, getting in touch with source and abundance and positivity. They'd rather hold you down. And this goes back thousands of years, even to the Romans. The Romans were the first people to uh, fluoridate water. Holy their shit. Their entire water system was fluoridated because they realized it dumbed down the people. Damn. Not only did they fluoridate their water, they had this campaign called Bread and Circus, which is basically similar to what goes on in today's world, where all of the entertainment in the Colosseum was free. And mm -hmm. they fed you free bread. So every one of their citizens was fed and, fed and entertained for free. So who's going to revolt if they're fed? Yeah if they're entertained, and if their water's flowing. Yeah, it goes back to Goggins. It's like, if you're too comfortable, sh life just walks all over you, and you get manipulated, and you get controlled, and that's why well, I that's the problem. Like, get fucking uncomfortable. That's the problem with our, our generation, and we're almost 40, is I think right around our generation, we started getting soft. Yeah. And it's like, I'm raising kids now, and I'm seeing these kids being really soft, and I'm seeing 
eighth place trophies go out and I'm seeing, you know, everyone's a winner. And it's like, no, we need to be really clear. Everyone is not a winner. Yeah. Like this is not the way life works. You know, you get what you deserve in life. You get what you work you get for. What you give. And I really think that our society really expects Ed McMahon to show up with the check and hand him a few million dollars and they're a millionaire. But Abraham would easy. say yes. Abraham would be like, yes, that is what you should do. They're like more of the, on the current of just like, Relax. And I got you, it. but how many people are so in the flow that they can manifest millions of dollars to their front door without any hard work? Right. Most people are in the flow of the opposite direction of going against the flow and right. making. They're nightmaring. They're nightmaring. Yeah. Absolutely. Instead of instead of daydreaming. You know what else I heard about the Romans? That actually, okay. So I just got my hair cut. Right. Everybody, you can't see it, but it looks badass. And I kind of did it because Adam did too. But. Um, the Romans would cut their hair because that's what they did to go to battle. Like you didn't want your hair pulled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I cut my hair. That's funny. I want to be a warrior. Yeah, man. Well, it, it's really interesting because they're finding that um, a lot of this mycelium, a lot of the mushrooms were used uh, by soldiers in the Roman armies, really? in the Greek armies. I don't get in that, the dude, armies. because like, when I take mushrooms, I can't like do much stuff. It's about the dosage, though. They would give you a micro to medium dose, and you're, you're trained to use it in the same way that... Um, the American army was using methamphetamine during yeah. World War II. Yeah. The same way that the Russians were drugging their soldiers with meth so that they could, or the Germans, so that they could work for days on end without sleeping. So society's long been using these these things. I think what's really fascinating that I just learned in the last week is, um, you know, just the whole idea that LSD comes from a mushroom. It's called ear, earwat. What's uh, the mushroom called? Ergot. Er, er, ergot. E-R-G-O-T. And, and you've heard the story of how LSD was discovered and synth- synthesized, right? Yeah, he was trying, well, he was trying to find the, a, a chemical to, to do what again? It was, it, I believe it initiated with helping labor. It had to do with helping a woman with something in labor. Interesting. And so he synthesized what he called LSD-25 or something from this ergot mushroom, uh-huh. right? And he put it away he really noticed how beautiful the the patterns were when he looked at him with the microscope and so he put it away and he's like i'll check on this later five years later he had this inkling to get it back out he got it back out and somehow he's usually very careful fully gloved he got a little bit on his skin and he just started to trip out and he got on his bike and he rode his bike home and his assistant called the doctor and the doctor came over and did a full health check and he's like, you know what? The only thing I can say are your pupils are really dilated, <laughs> but you're totally healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. And that was 419. And so now on 419 every year in Europe, there's this bike ride where all the, oh, sweet. they celebrate at Hoffman or, yeah. or and uh, so yeah, it was a total accident that, that LSD was found and synthesized. But again, it comes from a mushroom. So. Yeah. Why Why do the powers that be want to control the natural supplements that we can take? Why do they want to make organic food more expensive than a fucking cheeseburger? Tell me that. Um, control and fear. Okay, but also health, right? If they make it harder for us to eat healthy, doesn't that mean that our, yeah. our mental health is, yeah. is... They can control us better. They control us better, yeah. right? So, and if we take these substances and wake up from the like Matrix program, then they can't control us anymore either. Yeah, and you know, I saw this great quote by... Um, What's his name? The English actor. He's hilarious. Everyone calls him crazy because he speaks so honestly about um, everything. Russell Russell Brand. Yeah, yes. baby. Yes. Love that and guy. he's got this great quote. And I'm going to read it to you because it is so powerful. And I just think it speaks to everything. And Russell Brand says, 
Cannabis isn't a gateway drug. Alcohol isn't a gateway drug. Nicotine isn't a gateway drug. Caffeine isn't a gateway drug. Trauma is the gateway. Childhood abuse is the gateway. Molestation is the gateway. Neglect is the gateway. Drug abuse, violent behavior, hypersexuality, and self-harm are often symptoms, not the cause of much bigger issues, and it almost always stems from a childhood filled with trauma, absent parents, and an abusive family. But most people are too busy laughing at the homeless and drug addicts to realize your own children could be in their shoes in 15 years. Dude, I got chills when you read that. Right? That is so true, man. Everyone tries to... That's be- what it is. It's the trauma. It's, it, it cycles around. It, it creates so much pain that it's like the, the addiction to drugs or whatever it is that people are addicted to, it can be anything. That's totally a natural response to get out of that nightmare pain yep. that you don't know else know how to get it's like a relief and same thing with suicide that's why people are driven to kill themselves like how can you blame them if the pain is that bad why the fuck wouldn't you do something to change it it's just that there's other ways to do it you know like you're saying exercise meditation mm-hmm. and you know certain plant medicines and yep. all that kind of thing man yeah absolutely but, and, and but people blaming... don't even re- realize the trauma in their life I don't think because it's like no. it's covered up you don't want to look at you it, sweep it under but the rug, once you get you more aware it. through whatever meditation or, or the psychedelics or whatever it is you start to have these memories of like holy fuck yeah. like my whole childhood was like filled with like really like gnarly shit yeah. and whoa I'm still carrying it around and got this anxiety and I can't sleep at night and whoa and yeah. then you're able to heal it thank God because well there's God yeah there's love yeah absolutely and i mean if you if you look at uh, uh the beginning of cannabis in this country 50 60 years ago um and it had to do with uh the Hisp- you can get it i can edit with the hispanic hispanic and the uh the african-american population and they were the populations the minorities and the majority mostly using cannabis and if you look at them i mean a lot of these people were treating trauma. You know, they wow, were yeah. they were former slaves. They were unemployed. They had dealt with family members that had been murdered and lynched simply for the color of their skin. I mean, yeah. jazz musicians, Cab Calloway, all of the greats. I mean, it, it is it is coping to help with the trauma. And I have to say, alcohol does not help you cope in the same way that a cannabis or a psilocybin or something like that does. Alcohol distills your spirit much like it distills lavender or rose or anything. It's like somebody drinks alcohol long enough, it destroys your brain. I mean, they're finding in brain image scanning now that alcohol destroys your brain. Well, duh. Duh. I mean, we've known that. It kills your brain. Why is alcohol the number one choice of uh, drug in the world? Well, because... Why is it okay for people to to drink alcohol anytime they want, for alcohol to have a non-childproof lid when my cannabis has to have a childproof lid? Why does alcohol and tobacco skip everything that now, let's say, a plant like cannabis doesn't? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's because the powers that be know that alcohol brings you down. Adam, you got quite a soapbox here, man. You really... Well, I'm just pissed off. I'm 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 just really pissed off that it's totally legal for people to be raging alcoholics and get behind their car and buy vodka at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning still drunk from the night before like I'm I'm over that like why is that okay why is it okay for my kids to see beer advertising and alcohol advertising with pretty women running on the beach every other commercial or advertisement on my, my Pandora like 
why is it okay? As a cannabis uh, entrepreneur, I'm not allowed to advertise cannabis in most publications or on the radio mm. or on Facebook or Instagram. You can advertise that shit right here on Miracle Soup. Let no, me tell I, you right I, 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 don't, I don't need to. <laughs> what I need to do is I need to say enough's enough with this alcohol shit. Like I'm over it. Like alcohol has destroyed too many lives. And let's go back to suicide for a minute. I was thinking about my friend earlier today whose body I found after he took his own life. And that was alcohol related. Yeah, I mean, he was an alcoholic. You make stupid for years. Ass decisions when you're drunk. That's for you lose your shit. judgment, man. If he wasn't drinking, I don't know that he pulls that trigger. And honestly, the the worst I, the worst judgment effect I think of cannabis is that it makes me like overly loving and nice, so that I'll like want to be like so loving and kind with people. Like, well, that's if that's, that's even really a drawback. But that's but it's scary. Like, that's scary to the powers that be. Yeah. We don't want you to use a substance that makes you connect with your wife and play with your kids and be happy and get involved. We want to give you a substance that makes you beat your wife, neglect your kids, abuse your kids. I mean, uh, enough. Like, enough is enough. Yeah. Alcohol destroys too many lives. It should have some regulations on it. And uh, until people have the same opportunity to work with plant and fungus medicines, uh, I'm going to be a big advocate against big alcohol and big tobacco. Because uh, they killed millions of people, including the grandparents on my parents' side who were addicted to tobacco and alcohol, and uh, etc. So, dude, my battery's about to run out, yeah. so I'm gonna uh, go ahead and yeah, end this one. But thanks, Adam, for Much joining love me. To on the people. Soup. Isn't it funny when you're just kind of wandering out by yourself and the universe brings you to your best friend meditating <laughs> in a park? You get this good stuff. Sweet guys. Love you, people. Thanks for listening. Stay Aloha. Happy. Choose a happy thought, bro.